I want to talk to you tonight about influencing nations, and I want to talk to you about prophets and kings. And um, I, I had this, I don't know if you want to call it a revelation. It's, you know, it's, if you don't know it, it's a revelation to you. So I'll say it's a revelation to me. I had this revelation some time ago, uh, maybe a year and a half ago. I was dealing with some, um, well, frankly, I was dealing with some issues over how different people approach prophetic ministry. And I have a lot of concerns about that. If you've been around me or you've heard any of my podcasts or my students will have heard many of these messages, I have a lot of concern about the way in which the prophetic ministry is applied in the nations. And and practically, too. uh, Personally, too, I mean. But uh, especially, I, I would say I have greater concerns over prophecies that happen in nations, and I was confronted with um, a particular prophecy that a friend of mine gave that was, um, was pretty, uh, fact that I really love this person, but I really don't like the way this is being said or, or, this, is, or this is happening. And I began to um, kind of wrestle with God over some things, and I I, w- I want to um, share with you some of the things I'm thinking, and some of this isn't processed out very well, so when I'm all done, there may be pieces of this message that I don't agree with. <laughs> the problem is I don't know what pieces that would be, but, but next time I come back, I'll come back and I'll fix the pieces. That it's, it's a lot nicer writing a book because the editors tell you, like, what you said right there is stupid. Like, you don't want to put that on paper. <laughs> I have things on YouTube I wish I wouldn't have said, and my students think it's really cool. They're just like... Oh, that's so amazing. I'm like, oh, that was heresy. I wish I wouldn't have said that. Um, why don't you turn to Genesis 41. And I, I want to talk about six different kinds of prophets. And, and maybe I'll just give you some of the, uh, the first part of the message so you know where I'm going. Because people, um, this lady came up to me and she said, well, you preach like a mystery movie. Like you have to wait till the last five minutes to actually know what you meant. I'm like, I don't know, I don't know if she, how she meant that, but Here, here's where I'm going. I feel like there are, there's probably more than this, but I found during this um, couple, this couple weeks that I was wrestling with this prophecy, I found, I, I began to look through the prophets of the Old Testament. And by the way, I do think there's a difference between Old Testament and New Testament prophecy. And if we had more time, I would, I, I've taught that. I think I even taught it here, to be honest. Um, and, and you can get on my website, and there's a message uh, there you can have for free. It's called um, Living in Graceland. And, you can, uh, and there's a piece of that message that's about the difference between Old and New Testament prophecy. So I do believe there's a difference. But there was some patterns, and I started looking at the patterns in the Old Testament. And this is what I came across, and I want to talk to you more about it, but I came across six different models of, of prophets in the Old Testament. And there, you, you may research and find six more or ten more or whatever, but these popped out at me. There was Joseph and Daniel, and these were prophets who had relationships with the kings that, that they served, and they helped to govern countries by ministering, by serving the leaders of those countries. And this, this, so Joseph and, and Daniel were, were one type, and I know there are others in the Old Testament that did that, but they specifically had a governmental anointing. And by that I mean that Joseph and, and Daniel, they didn't just serve the king, they, had, um, they served their, their king's Joseph with Pharaoh, um, Daniel with four kings. They, they had understanding of what the kings should do governmentally. And there's a reason why I'm making that point. Then there was, there was also Nathan and Gad. Nathan and Gad specifically served David when David was king. But interestingly enough, David and Gad didn't seem to have much insight in what the country should do but they gave David, but they were David's personal prophets, and so they, were, they ministered inside the palace, so to speak, 
but they ministered specifically to David's needs personally and did not have, at least according to what I can read, they did not have insight into what David should do corporately with the exception of maybe passing the baton to Solomon. So they were, Nathan and Gad were two prophets who unlike Joseph and Daniel, they did serve kings, but unlike Joseph and Daniel, they did not give David prophetic words about where the country should go, what direction the country should take, but they simply kept David, if you will, in the, in the center of the will of God. And we'll talk more about these, uh, at least a couple of them, in a few minutes. And then there was Elijah and Elisha. This is a completely different model than you see with Joseph and with, um, with, with Daniel. Elijah and Elisha, with the exception of one king, served kings from the outside of the palace instead of Nathan and Gad, Joseph and Daniel, who actually you know, had access to the king. They loved the kings they worked with. The kings basically loved them. They had influence with the kings. They counseled the kings. Uh, Elijah and Elisha were, were, were they ministered to the kings from the, or they ministered to the country from the outside of the palace, basically throwing stones into the palace, and they did not like the kings they served. You know, Ahab, Jezebel, and so forth. And the exception is that um, that Elijah served uh, Hezekiah, which he liked most of the time. <laughs> but besides that. They basically had an adversarial relationship with the king, with their kings they served. And they, you know, Elijah stopped the rain, as you'll remember, three and a half years. He killed 450 prophets of Baal. And he, when he prophesied to the kings, it was almost always some kind of destructive, terrible thing. Um, there was Hosea and Amos, which is interesting because Hosea and Amos were two prophets who actually didn't have influence with kings at all. We would call this the Jesus people movement. They were, they were prophets to the people. They were farmers who prophesied not to kings, but to the people of God. And they had, as far as I can see, no influence with kings at all. But they, but they fueled and were a catalyst to a people movement. Much like, in other words, there, in their day, it was a grassroots movement coming from the bottom up. And then, and then lastly, um, there was, I'm sorry, there's two more. There was Moses, Eli, and Samuel, and we could include David in this too. But Moses, Eli, and Samuel were not Joseph and Daniel. Joseph and Daniel were second to the kings, they were counselors to the kings, but Moses, Eli, and, and uh, I'm sorry, Moses, uh, Eli, and Samuel were actually prophets who actually led the country. So they were not influencing the leader, they were the leader. And you can add other prophets to, this, to that list, by the way, because David was in Acts 4 called uh, a prophet. So my point is that there were prophets who actually led countries. They weren't influencing the leader they were the leader. And the last one I want to talk about tonight is there was Jonah. And Jonah was a prophet, and we might call him an evangelistic prophet. He was a prophet to the unsaved. He was a prophet to unbelievers. And you know the story about Nineveh, and his ministry was not to Israel. It was to the the heathens, to the Gentiles, to those who didn't know God. Does that make sense to you? And tonight I want to talk just a little bit about this and, and maybe uh, help bring some, at least for me, it helped me to um, find a place of peace and realizing that God wants to transform the world and God has more than one way to do that. That there isn't one right way to do something and, I, and if you're anything like me, when God gives me a revelation, I think, I, I tend to think, I'm right, everybody else is wrong. And I'm realizing that God uses different people to do different things. And that what's right for you may not be right for me. And that I need to be careful that I don't take the convictions that God has given me 
and superimpose them over what you're supposed to do. And, and oftentimes we model our ministries, I think oftentimes we model our ministry after someone else's anointing and find no success in our life because we are called, let's say, to be an Elijah and we are modeling our ministry after a Daniel and it just doesn't work for us. And so, and I also have a strong sense, and I'll, uh, towards the end of the message, uh, I'll talk to you about, I think that our movement, and I'm, I'm going to not say, I'm not going to include Che in this because I haven't had a conversation with Che, I, I think that our movement talking about Bethel and our global legacy movement and those who follow us, which typically follow you, but because I haven't had a conversation with Che, uh, and we haven't come to an agreement about this, I think that we personally have a certain prophetic DNA that is, const- that is consistent in our sons and daughters that doesn't make us right, but it does make us different. Are you following me? And so um, let's just go back for a few minutes, and we won't take lots and lots of time to study these six different ones. I wanted to just take uh, Joseph as an example, and you'll know the story. I'm going to tell you mostly by stories because I have a lot of ground to cover, and there's a few other things I want to pull into this teaching, and I don't want you to be sitting here for two hours. So in Genesis chapter 41, it's where Joseph, uh, uh, where Pharaoh has a dream. Now, this is really interesting. If I can just pull, can, I, I, want to, I want this to be dual dimensional right here. I want, to, I want to tell you a historic a story that really happened, and I also want to propose to you that this is also a metaphor for where we're at in the New Testament. Joseph, in my mind, there really was a Joseph, by the way. I, sometimes when we do this, I have people come up to me like, you don't believe there was a Joseph, you don't believe there was a Pharaoh, you kind of like, this is the, the Bible was written as a metaphor. I'm like, no, no, I actually believe there was a Joseph, I actually believe there was really a Pharaoh, that they really did, you know, cross, that Moses, you know, crossed the, the Red Sea on dry land. I believe all those stories are absolutely true. I don't think they're metaphors. I just think that the scripture has dimensions to it. So I think the scripture is like, reading, is like looking at a hologram. If you've ever seen a hologram, you, there's a picture which is real, but if you stare at it long enough, there's another dimension, and sometimes it opens up a whole other world to you. And so, I, first of all, Joseph has this dream, and you know this story well. Joseph has a dream, he has this dream that he's going to someday be a ruler. In fact, he sees his brothers bowing down to him you know, with the sheaves, and then he has another dream the next night, and he sees the sun and the moon bowing down to him. How many of you remember that dream? And... Just a little background. Isn't it interesting that he saw the sun and the moon bowing down to him? When he told his father that he saw the sun and the moon bowing down, his father was offended. Now, he didn't say, I saw you and mom bowing down. He said, I saw the sun and the moon bowing down. And when he said that, his father said, so you think your mother and I will bow down to you. But he didn't say that. He said, I saw the sun and the moon bowing down. Which... Just to, the reason why I say that is, it's interesting the way that prophetic people can read. <laughs> See, when prophets, when teachers interpret prophets' words in the Bible, it's interesting the definitions they come up with. So when the stars fall from heaven, and the sun turned dark, and the moon turned to blood... There's a lot of people still waiting for the sun to turn dark and the moon to turn to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord. And I'd propose to you that when Jesus died on the cross, the sun did turn dark and the moon turned to blood. You're saying Jesus is the moon. That's right. He said, I can't do anything unless I see my Father doing it. The moon doesn't have a light of its own. It's the reflection of the Father. So when the sun turned dark, the moon turned to blood, and it began this epic season called the Great and Glorious Days of the Lord. All that to say that Joseph had a dream. And in the dream, he basically heard that he was going to be a ruler. You know the story. His brothers get jealous. They put him in a pit. He goes from the pit, then to the prison, and finally through a long a much longer story than we have time for, he ends, up in the, he ends up in the palace, interpreting dreams. The king 
King Pharaoh has a dream. He dreams of seven fat calves and seven skinny calves. Do you remember this dream? And the seven fat calves eat the seven skinny calves. Now, did I say it right? Okay. <laughs> well, don't do that, lady. Don't make that little noise you just made, unless I do it wrong. <laughs> I'm accustomed to being edited publicly, so when you make that uh noise, that uh noise means... You said it backwards. It wasn't clear. You got the verse number wrong. Okay. So he has a stream. Now this is uh, this is this is intriguing to me. Joseph, I'm sorry, Pharaoh doesn't know God. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know God. These are two kings who don't know God, and they have it. And both of them have a dream. Here's this is interesting because this is in common with two kings hundreds of years apart. Joseph's Pharaoh, Joseph's Pharaoh has a dream. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Now I'd propose to you that those people who dream, they dream all the time. But, jo- but Pharaoh has a dream, and he's convinced that whatever this dream is, that this dream somehow has to do with the preservation of his country, but he doesn't know what it means. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's interesting the way he gets the dream. It says that Nebuchadnezzar was laying on his bed, and he was thinking about the future. And when he was thinking about the future, he has this dream. Do you remember this? And he, sees, and he sees this tree. When did he have the dream? When he was thinking about the future. And the dream is so powerful in his life that he knows, even though he doesn't know God, he knows this dream is going to change history. Isn't it interesting that God would take a man who doesn't know God, give him a God dream, create a conviction in him that this dream, that this dream, understanding this dream is going to change your history, but I'm not going to tell you what the dream means. I I believe that Pharaoh is dreaming again. He's putting it on movie screens, but he doesn't know what it means. So Pharaoh has this dream, and, and you know Joseph interprets a bunch of dreams in prison. So you know the cupbearer who he interpreted the dream for said, hey, there's this guy in prison. He's pretty good at interpreting dreams. Maybe he could tell you what the dream is. And so he comes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, I had this dream, fat calves, skinny calves, da-da-da. And Joseph says, those seven fat calves are seven good years. Now how did he get that? Those of you that are teachers and theologians, did you get that like from the original Hebrew language? Like the word cow actually means it's related to... I know so many crazy things happen in the name of God. He gets seven fat calves and seven skinny calves. And Joseph said, those are seven good years and seven bad years. And you're going to have seven great years and you're going to have seven years of famine. And the seven years of famine, the, the seven... Seven good years are going to eat up the seven bad years, and if you don't do something, you're going to all starve to death. And Joseph, it says that Joseph, he invites Joseph in, and he says this in the 41st chapter of Genesis. He says to Joseph, listen, I am Pharaoh, but nobody does anything without your permission, even me, from this day forward. In the in the forty. Fifth chapter, Joseph's brothers comes, come into Egypt and they don't know he's Joseph. They don't know he's his brother. And Joseph makes a statement to them. Of course, he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But he says this to them. He said, I want you to come into Egypt during this famine because I have become a father to Pharaoh. I have become a father to Pharaoh. Now, I don't know if this is, means anything to you yet. But we've been called to make disciples of all nations. And I can't tell you how many times as a young Christian, I heard that, I, that Egypt was a type of my bondage before I knew Christ. And that I was, I was, if you will, born in Egypt. I received Jesus and I crossed the Red Sea. 
I was baptized into the Red Sea, the, sea, the blood of Jesus, if you will. I went through the wilderness, and then I crossed a river, the Jordan River, a river that's, <laughs> there's a river that, that runs through your soul. There's a second baptism. How many of you know it's one thing for the Spirit to be in you, it's another thing for you to be in the Spirit? John said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. How many know that Jesus prayed, Father, I would that you would, the way that I'm in you and you in me, I pray that they would be in us and we would be in them. How many know that when you receive Jesus, he comes in you? But when you get baptized in the Holy Spirit, you come in him. And so I was taught that Egypt was, a, was, a, was like our, our old life. We crossed the, Jordan, the Red Sea. We were baptized in the Red Sea. We came into the wilderness, but we weren't yet in the Promised Land. We crossed the Jordan River, and there was a river of life that came through our soul. And, and then they went through three cities before they ever came into the Promised Land, as, as you know. The first one was called Sin. The name of the city was Sin. The next city was Adam. And the next city was Gilgal, which means circumcised. How many of you understand that before you came in the promised land, you had to deal with sin. You had to deal with your old man, Adam. And finally, you had to be circumcised of heart, and then you came into the promised land. I'm simply saying that Egypt was a sign of bondage that we came out of. And isn't it interesting that Joseph was a father to the man who was over bondage? The world. What am I saying? God so loved the world. It it, it didn't say, and God so loved the church, he gave his only begotten son. That's the way we read it. It says God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And what I'm getting at is this. I believe that Joseph and Pharaoh, see, Joseph had a dream, and Pharaoh had a dream. How many know that if if Joseph didn't have a dream, Pharaoh died in a famine? How many know that if Pharaoh didn't have a dream, Joseph died in prison? That there's a partnership between Joseph and Pharaoh. <laughs> there's, a par- okay. there's a partnership between the church and the world. I'm not talking about worldliness. I'm talking about the world. That God so loved the world. And that he's called prophets to make friends with the world. I can argue the other side of this all day long. I'm not talking about worldliness, because these guys, the, the reason why Joseph and Daniel were able to make friends with the world is because they can, com- comp- they can customize without compromise. Daniel prayed three times a day. He refused to eat the king's food, but guess what? He was called a psychic. He was the chief of all the psychics. He wasn't a prophet in his day. He was a futurist. He was a psychic. And his name was Belshazzar, which was the king's god. And up till the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel, the king, who had a close relationship with Daniel, thought that Daniel was a polytheist, believed in multiple gods. It wasn't until Nebuchadnezzar had an encounter with God did he know that Daniel only served one god. Because he said, Daniel, whom the spirit of the holy gods are in, in chapter 4. And what I'm getting at is this, is that Daniel said, call me whatever you want, just let me have influence with you. But in order to do that, you have to have great character. You can't eat the king's food. You have to pray three times a day towards Jerusalem. You get the idea. This is partly metaphoric. What I'm saying is, is that God entrusted him with that place in the kingdom because he learned how to customize without compromise. And therefore, he got to be inside the palace instead of outside throwing stones. (laughs) In the 50th chapter, which is to me one of the most powerful chapters of all of the Old Covenant. In the 50th chapter of the book of Genesis, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. Am I born, you guys? Some of you look bored. I'm so sorry if I am. In the 50th chapter of the book of Genesis, Jacob dies. Jacob's name changed to Israel. Israel has 12 tribes. You get the idea. He's in Egypt. 
right? And he dies. Now, I should tell you this one part that's really cool. When Jacob meets Pharaoh, remember he was in he was in Israel and he comes because there was a famine in the land, he comes into Egypt because Joseph calls for all of his brothers and his father to come. It says that when Jacob meets Pharaoh, it says, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And then it says, and Pharaoh gave him the best of all the land. <laughs> when Jacob dies, Joseph goes to his father, I'm sorry, to Pharaoh and says, my father died. And he made me promise that I would not bury him in Egypt, but that I would bury him in the land of, the, of my father's promises, in Canaan's land. And it says this, it says in the 50th chapter, the first few verses, it says that 40 days were allotted for mourning for Jacob. But the Israel, no, I'm sorry, but the Egyptians mourned for 70 days. The Israelites mourned for 40 days, but the Egyptians didn't stop crying for 70 days over Israel. When Jacob says to, I'm sorry, when Joseph says to Pharaoh, please give me a leave of absence so I could go bury my father, Pharaoh says, no way. You are not going to bury your father by yourself. We are all going with you. And all the Egyptian officials went with Jacob, I'm sorry, went with Joseph to Canaan's land. And get this, when they passed through the land of the Amorites, they were weeping along the way. And the Bible says that they named that place the place where the Egyptians wept. What would happen if you became such a benefit to the world that the world mourned the loss of you? (laughs) Daniel, same thing, and for the sake of time, the king Nebuchadnezzar, his second dream, he has this dream of this tree, and you know the story. The tree the tree's cut down, gets cut down, and it's a bad dream. Daniel doesn't have the doesn't have the word. Nebuchadnezzar has the word about himself. And when Daniel hears the dream, he says to the king, I would that this was about your enemies and not about you. It's amazing when a king, the king of Babylon, who in the book of Revelation, Babylon is still seen as the mother harlot. That the king of Babylon, who destroyed Israel, took Daniel's parents captive, brought them into, brought Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into captivity, destroyed his country, Wiped out the temple, destroyed this beautiful temple, the way of worship, and worshipped idols, set up a statue to himself for all the people to worship. It's amazing when Daniel, Daniel could say, I would that this dream was about your enemies and not about you. We complain about President Obama. People write bad stuff. Someone wrote me and said, President Obama's the Antichrist. I'm like, you don't know what the heck you're talking about. I I wrote back and said, at least it ain't the Pope this year. Uh, I mean, you know what? We have this like view, like God, you know, the sky is falling. Everything's going wrong. Oh my God, we're just like going off into ew, the devils. The Antichrist is going to rise from the sea and they're going to eat people. And you got numbers on your head and the food is going away. And I'm oh. Everything's terrible. I'm like, just talk to your great grandfather, man. He went through the depression. It's like, what are you going to have to cut back to one car? Oh no. How are we going to do that? It's just, anyway. It's like, I don't know how I can honor President Obama. Well, Daniel honored Nebuchadnezzar. 
This may be just a little whatever. I happen to love President Obama. No, I mean, I don't like stuff he's doing. I just love him. And if you don't, it's fine with me. I have no problem with you. God does. God has a problem with you. When in chapter 6 of Daniel, Darius, which is the third king that he serves, King Darius, gets tricked into putting Daniel in the lion's den. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Daniel's 92. Probably why the lions didn't eat him. I don't know if that was a miracle. <laughs> you get thrown in the lion's den at 92, the lion's all, mm, eh. I don't like jerky. <laughs> and it says this, it's in chapter 6 and starts in verse 14. It says that the king fasted all night. King Darius fasted all night. Which that's a royal fast, that's what I do. I fast all night. Seriously. It says, it honest to God, you have to read it. It says, and the, it, gives a, it gives the king credit for fasting all night. That's a royal fast. We're a royal priesthood. I'm going to write a book on it, royal fasting. I'm actually fasting 300 days a year. Yep, I'm only eating about 65 days. You add it up, just a couple hours a day. I break fast in the morning. <laughs> he gets up when the sun rises. He runs to the lion's den. And before he gets there, he starts yelling, Daniel was the God whom you've served day and night able to save you. And this is what he hears out of the lion's den. Oh, king, may you live forever. You want to change the world? You better fall in love with the people who are leading it. You want to have influence with people? You want to change nations? You better fall in love with the people who are leading the nations. Uh, I'm going to tell you some stuff today that I may not get invited back here. Elijah is a different kind of prophet, and I won't talk too much about him tonight, but Elijah calls for a famine. He's, he, he kills, uh, in 1 Kings uh, 17, he calls for a famine. In 1 Kings 18, he kills the 450 prophets of Baal. The story is so well known. I know you know the story. And then he runs from one woman, which I understand because I'm married. <laughs> I'd rather face 450 prophets than one mad wife. <laughs> and all the husbands said, Amen. <laughs> What's that? I have it easy. That's <laughs> because I know how to obey. <laughs> it's funny to me. It says, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands die for your wives. Lay down your, your life for your wife. It's funny that we are, or that husbands are on a death march to a life camp. <laughs> and we emphasize submission. It don't make any sense to me. A woman is never told to die for her husband. A husband's told to die for his wife, but we emphasize submission. At least respect us while we're dying. <laughs> I have so much to say about it. I just finished a book. I spent 400 hours. I was going to preach on women. It's still in my head. 
it's so funny to me that, uh, that a man and wife, they'll get counsel, and, and the counsel to the woman is, listen, your husband has a career, and your job is to make sure he's successful. And well, that's kind of odd, because he's told to die. <laughs> he's told to lay down his life like Christ did for the church, and Christ, what did Christ do for the church? He, he, he washed her, he took care of her, he empowered her. <laughs> But somehow I'm supposed to, she's supposed to die to her dream so I can have mine. I think the Bible says the opposite, but it's just an idea I had. <laughs> anyway, that's off the subject. <laughs> yeah, all the women are like, uh, preaching. All the husbands are like, uh, <laughs> I don't like your book already. So there's Elijah and Elisha. They, have, they don't have a good relationship with the king. They don't like the king. They're calling for a famine. They see the king. They call him bad names. The king doesn't like him, either one of them. You know all of those stories. And, and I began to realize that it takes people like Elijah and Elisha, and it takes Daniels and Joseph. It takes both kinds of prophets. It takes the, the, the prophets that are in the palace, and it takes the prophets that are outside the palace who are calling for, if you will, Old Testament, I know, metaphorically speaking. But there, it takes both kinds. And we have prophets who are reminding Israel of their sins, and we got prophets that are friends with the sinners. And, but here's one thing I want to say. You can't be both. <laughs> if you're throwing rocks at the king, he ain't going to invite you in to ask you what you think about his family. I can tell you that. Or, hey, I had this dream about fat calves and skinny calves. If you're throwing rocks at him, he's probably not going to invite you in to ask your opinion. Because you only have as much influence in people's lives as they have value for you. And what happens when you have trying to have lots of influence and there's no value? That gap's usually called manipulation and witchcraft. Or as we say commonly in our church, witchcraft. <laughs> a year and a half ago, I was going through this thing I told you about, and I was thinking about particular prophets who I'm friends with who are, in my opinion, like Elijah and Elisha's. And I was, I was watching this whole thing play out. And the Lord said, you don't, you don't understand what I'm doing. Read the story of John the Baptist and Jesus. So I began to read the story of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. This is at the birth of, of John. It says this. The, the angel is prophesying to Zacharias. And he said, you're going to have a son. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while he's yet in his mother's womb. And it goes on like that. Here's the key. John the Baptist will drink no wine or liquor. Are you with me? Chapter 7 of the book of Luke. For John the Baptist came eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say he's a gluttonous man, a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors. What's the point? Jesus' first miracle is he, making, he makes wine at a wedding. He makes wine at a wedding. When John is born, John can't cut his hair, he can't drink wine, and he preaches in the wilderness. And when he sees sinners repenting, when he sees the Pharisees coming, you remember, he's a, he's a PK. He's a son of Zacharias who is a priest. And when he sees his father's friends coming to get baptized, he goes, you brought a vipers who told you to repent. These are guys who actually are, want to get baptized by John. <laughs> John's only message is repent. The people Jesus is friends with, John doesn't like. I don't know if you thought through this. Jesus is making wine at a party. John can't drink wine. And then in Matthew chapter 3, something happens. Jesus comes to Galilee. Verse 13. It says, when Jesus arrived from Galilee to Jordan, where John was, to be baptized, and he came to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? 
But Jesus answering him said, Permit it at this time, for this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him, and after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him as a dove and lighting upon him. And behold, a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, who I am well pleased. Now, I understand, we've all read that story hundreds of times, at least I have. I want you to see what's happening. John's baptism is a baptism of repentance. That's what Acts chapter 18 says. Remember when Paul sees these believers who have been baptized? He said, when you were baptized, he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit? They say, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. He said, what baptism were you baptized into? And he said, into John's. And and Paul said, John baptized for repentance. How many of you know that a person who never sins doesn't need to repent? John, when Jesus was baptized by John, John was trying to keep Jesus from being baptized because he knew that his baptism was a baptism of repentance, and he kept saying, here's the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Jesus was not getting baptized because he needed it. He was getting baptized because he was honoring a different anointing. And when he honored an anointing that was polar opposite of his, this man can't drink wine This man can't put a razor to his face. This man wears camel's hair and eats locusts. And where does he preach? When you dress like that, you preach in the wilderness. (laughs) This man, on the other hand, is hanging out with sinners. He's going to parties. And not only does he go to the party when they run out of wine, he makes wine. Listen, he has such a bad reputation, they call him a drunkard. We would say a party animal. This man has a reputation as a party animal. This man, all he does is fast. This man is harsh. This man loves everybody. When Jesus comes to John, he says, I need to be baptized by you. These are two polar opposite ministries. A non-drinker, a drinker. A partier. A wildernesser. <laughs> and when Jesus is baptized by John, then the Holy Spirit comes on him. And then he hears a voice from heaven, this is my beloved son who I'm well pleased. For 30 years, the Holy Spirit was not on Jesus. It came on Jesus when he honored another man's ministry who did it opposite of him. And he heard a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son who I'm well pleased. That only happened after he honored the ministry of somebody who did it opposite of him. Your way is not the only way. And I have a feeling that there's only one way to God, but there's lots of ways that countries turn to God. I haven't figured it all out yet. But I do know that there's more to the kingdom than what you see and what I see. And there are lots of ways to look at this elephant we call the kingdom. And it's funny, but whatever part of the elephant we see, we're convinced it's the only part there is. Now, here we go. How much? I don't know how long I've preached. So, if I have 15 more minutes or so? Okay. Um, this is my conviction. Our movement is not Elijah and Elisha. Our movement is Daniel and Joseph. That doesn't mean we're right. It just means this is what our movement was about. And I feel like it's really important for the prophetic people that are in our movement see, to understand what our DNA is. Because you can't scream at Jezebel and get invited in the palace. You have to choose. I would propose that God chooses. That you don't have a choice really that God chooses. You can choose to not obey. But I think the way you see the world has everything to do with how God, the perspective God gives you. And I think that there are a few core values that, that create a DNA um, the way we see the world. In Jeremiah, 
I'm going to give you a few of them quickly. In Jeremiah, they're in, they're in 70 years of captivity. And Jeremiah says this in the 29th chapter. He says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to give you a future. Not plans for calamity, but plans to give you a future and a hope. All through this conference, we've heard Isaiah 60, Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, deep darkness covers the earth, deep darkness of people. But the Lord will rise upon you. His uh, glory will be seen upon you. Nations will come to your light. Kings to the brightness of your rising. Look all around. They all come to you. Your sons will come from afar. Your, father, your, uh, your sons will come from afar. Your daughters will be carried in arms. Then your heart will thrill and be radiant. And the, because of the abundance of the sea is turned to you, the wealth of nations comes to you. And um, I, I love Isaiah 60. I, I think I see this passage a little different. To me, Isaiah 60 Arise and shine, for your light has come. For the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Behold, deep darkness covers the earth. I see deep darkness as, as the condition that we rise in, not the condition we finish in. I, this is just mine. I understand there's lots of ways to view this, but I, I don't know how light arises and darkness stays dark. I don't know if you take a, if you, if you take a light... And you make it brighter, I don't know how it gets darker somewhere. So, you know, there, there are people that, their perspective, and I just said I honor other people's perspectives, but I, I hear lots of people preaching, in the last days it's, it's going to get darker, the world's going to get darker, and the light's going to get lighter. The, the church is going to get brighter. It would be fine if Jesus said, you are the light of the church. But he said, you're the light of the world. So I don't know how the world gets darker if you're the light of the world. So it's very difficult for me to see metaphors like that and say in the last days it's good, the, the, dark, the world's going to get darker and darker and the church is going to get brighter and brighter. I'm like, where are the church supposed to... Listen, that's the devil's plan. The devil's plan is that there would be a separation between the church and the state. You would stay inside the walls of the church. You'd get really bright so that when the world can get... See, the only one way that you can... That you, if I got a light and I turned it up, it you know, got it brighter and brighter in here... There's only one way it can get darker in some places while it gets dark lighter in here, and that is that I cover the light. But Jesus said, not only do I not cover the light, I, no one puts a light under a basket, but I put it on a hill. So you are not the light of the church, you're the light of the world. So I'd propose that Isaiah 60, is, the first three verses are the condition in which we rise in, not the condition in which we finish in. <laughs> That's just my opinion, but I'm right. <laughs> and it goes on and on. You know, I believe that you know, some of, I'm, I'm describing to you some of the DNA of our movement. Our, our, our movement sees the prophetic much differently. When we see the Valley of Dry Bones, we call for a mighty army. When, when we see uh, wars and rumors of war... We turn to Isaiah chapter 2, where he says, In the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will become chief of the mountains. People will stream to it. And it goes on to saying, you know, it goes on to talk about the mountain of the house of the Lord becoming chief of the mountains. And it says, and people will stream to it. And then God will become the judge between, and he will make decisions between nations. And it says they will beat, beat their, their swords into plowshares their, and their, and their um, spears into pruning hooks. And never again will they train for war. And the verse begins with, in the last days, it will come about. So when we hear Jesus say, in the last days, there'll be wars and rumors of wars, and we realize that in Isaiah, he said, in the last days, there'll be no more war. We, our movement says, well, we already had rumors of war, and we haven't had no war, so we just believe Isaiah, Matthew 24 happened, and Isaiah hasn't, so one of the signs of the times is there'll be no war, because we've already had the first sign of the time, there'll be wars. <laughs> I know, I understand. You don't have to agree with me because you have the right to be wrong. <laughs> one of our, one of our um, core values is that nothing's impossible with God. That nothing is impossible with God. There's no debt too big that God can't solve it. There's no sinner too dark that God can't transform them. 
There's no sickness too, too bad that God can't heal them. There's no demonized person so demonized that God can't deliver them, and so on and so forth. So when we see a $16 trillion debt, or 17 or 20, we don't look at that and say, this is, the world is coming to an end, it's all over. Our <laughs> movement looks at things that are not and calls them as though they are. My God can make money. <laughs> I'm not saying he will, I'm just saying he can. so much to say there's so little time to say it in whenever people speak things that aren't redemptive I just wonder where the source is whenever people say things that create fear I wonder where the source is I didn't say necessarily say the source is wrong I say I question the source if it creates fear or it's unredemptive I, maybe this is a really bad example, but you know, if somebody comes in my office, two people come in my office and they're married and they want to get a divorce, you know what verses I'm going to use. God hates divorce. And he can do a miracle in your lives. And by the way, if you believe him, he will. I don't care how bad your marriage is, God can fix it. And not only that, but he probably will. And the fact that you're in here with a miracle-working man... When you've come to the right place. Are you with me? If somebody comes in my office and they've been divorced. And they've remarried. I don't use those same verses. It's not redemptive. It's not that I believe in divorce. It's like that's already happened. And now I have to deal with them where they're at. And I can't say, okay, well, the right thing to do now is for you to divorce this person and go back to the first person that you messed up with. You understand life's too complicated. And so, it's, you know, what... I, I, I understand, I'm using this as a metaphor. I'm saying that the wrong, the right scripture out of context is perversion. It's the wrong version. And in my opinion, whenever we use the scripture in a way that's not redemptive, we're, we, we've messed, we don't understand the heart of God. So, you know, when people are using the scriptures against countries, I'm like, Jesus died for the world, and you just took a verse, and the world he died for, you just caused them to wait to walk out their sins that he died to release them from. Which is a problem for me. Because God sent his only begotten son into the world to, not to judge the world. So it's funny to me that every time the world does something wrong, do you understand when the world's doing something wrong, they're acting like the world? <laughs> Why do you expect them to act different than the world? It doesn't make sense to me. Christians don't, I, I don't know why we don't think through this. Like Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. He loved you while you were yet sinners. He called you while you were yet a sinner. But once we get in, we want everyone else to get in through their works. It doesn't make sense to me. So this is the way we, we, our prophetic movement sees the world. When I see the world, and I don't say, you know, you're going to sow what you reap. I say Jesus stepped in between sowing and reaping. Listen, if you got what you deserved, you'd be in hell. Do you understand that? I, I, not only do I think that Jesus isn't trying to judge the world right now, I believe there's a day of judgment, I think he's trying to keep us from, sowing, from reaping what we sowed. You know how I know that? That's what he did in my life. He stepped, I sowed bad stuff, and he goes, we're going to put a stop to that. I deserved to be punished, but he stopped the punishment. You're in this room today, and I just had this thought. 
and you're like, you know what, you were, let's say you were immoral, and you got some kind of disease, venereal disease, you're like, you know what, I deserve this. <laughs> let's be clear, you deserve to be in hell. We all do. And you're like, you know, I can't ask Jesus to forgive me because I sinned. It's like, listen, if you got, that, to me, that's called penance. And there's a lot of people walking around with diseases that you shouldn't have because you think, I knew this was wrong and I did it anyway. That's why it's called sin. You can't sin by accident. What are you saying? I'm saying that if you have a venereal disease because you were immoral, Jesus wants to heal you. But I knew what I was doing was wrong. (laughs) That's why it's called sin. Because you knew it was wrong and you did it anyway. And what I'm trying to say is that Jesus stands in between our sowing and reaping. He took all of our sin on himself so that I no longer have to take the punishment for what I did wrong. I'm going to finish with this prophetic word that I gave in February, February 19th, before the election, of course, 2012. And this is, what I, this is the word the Lord gave me in... Um, and I, and I want to give you just a quick testimony. I have a sense that our country's improving. I had a vision of God blowing or breathing on this continent as Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a suggestion, but a command. I saw the nation turning blood red from the East Coast to the West Coast. It was the redemptive nature of forgiveness being assimilated into the ground, and out of the soil, souls were emerging like soldiers in a battlefield. Dead bones were becoming to life. They were dressed for battle in different realms. Some had expensive business suits. Others were dressed like doctors, teachers, mothers, and so forth. They were all, they were all given secret messages that they read, and then they ate. The messages transformed them and equipped them for their mission. Revelation was released over the nation, and inventions and innovations were springing up all over like flowers in the first week of spring. Pennsylvania was highlighted as a major breakthrough was rising from there. Instead of two towers, three towers were being built as a sign of the strength of the economy being supported by a three-quart strand. I felt the warning that many would look at the political climate to determine the condition of the country, but the signs of revival would not flow from the White House, but to it. Hope would not arise... Hope would not arise from the polls. This is before the election. Hope would not arise from the polls, but from the people. This was a people movement that would sweep the globe, turning the planet a deep purple. I saw the Lord blowing freezing cold air on Iran and North Korea. It created an impossible condition. It created, start over. It created impossible conditions for war. He literally froze their war machines. It was a political climate change equal to the fall of the Iron Curtain. Every country that was bent on war was frozen and the climate was suddenly unpredictably changed. It was weird but good. I saw that God had already released Daniels into China. Humility and and generosity would spring up from the east. God called it a helps movement. I saw China would be given the gift of helps for the world and God was hugging centuries of brokenness out of China. I heard the words, singing revolution. The next day I prophesied this. It's, some of it's the same. I really feel like we're in a good season. But this, to be really clear, I don't think that the political climate will determine what God is doing. I don't think that the Lord is leading with politicians right now. I don't mean he never does. I want that to be clear. I do think that there are countries outside America where the main move of God is coming from the political realm. But I don't think that in the ne- that, but I don't think that in the next four years that will be demonstrated. I don't think you can look to a person for the answer. But I'm actually saying, but what I'm actually saying is, I don't think that a person is going to bring this dramatic change that I see happening in our country. I think it's a people movement. I think the Lord is doing it among all the people, and I think it will be many people that will arise and become powerful, if you will, and famous in this movement but it probably won't be the people you voted for. The Lord said, don't look to the political climate to determine what's going to happen in America for the next four years. In other words, don't get excited or disappointed by what's happening in the political climate because the Lord has chosen a different venue for this season. And then I had this vision of three towers. I saw the Lord rise up and I saw generosity and humility come to our nation. 
I saw that generosity and humility and stewardship were going to begin to break the, the back of poverty and debt. Invention and innovation are going to begin to flow out of America. That was the dream I had. Why don't you stand? Let's pray. I believe it's really important that we keep ourselves free from the political spirit. That we, we pray for those who are in leadership in our country, no matter what side of the aisle they're on, and that we honor them as our leaders. Well, I don't, I don't like them. Well, that's fine, then just love your enemy. It's, I can find a verse for you to love them. It's good. But I believe that America has a future and a hope. And it's dependent on you having faith and praying that God turns the economy around. You know, I'd like you to consider this. Not wanting the economy to improve while a president you don't agree with is in, in office is a political spirit. That's one of the reasons why we can't seem to move forward, don't matter who's in office, because half of the country always resists good things happening when the people they didn't vote for are in office. And we have a nation divided against itself and wondering why we're having a hard time standing and I'd propose to you that a divided nation won't stand and so I'd like to ask you to check your heart it's really a bummer when people you have to agree with people to to love them put your hand on your heart and let's just pray right now Lord I I thank you for what you're doing tonight I thank you for the Elijah's and the Elisha's the John the Baptist that are preparing the way making the crooked places straight the rough places smooth I, I thank you for people that are outside the palace and they're reminding us of how far we've fallen. Lord, I also thank you for the Daniels, the Esthers, the Josephs, the people, the Nathans, the Gads that have found their way in the palace and that are loving kings and queens who they don't agree with, but they've been called to serve them. And Lord, I'm aware of how other Christians think of that as compromise. Sometimes it is. But Lord, I believe that you're raising up Daniels, Josephs, Esthers, Samuels, people who will make disciples of nations. That as you promised Abraham, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And Lord, I pray tonight that as we leave here that we wouldn't be satisfied with seeing the church reformed, but that we would realize that we are a light to the world. We're a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. 
God, that the condition of darkness is our problem, not the world's problem, because we are light, and we are salt of the earth. We are preservation, and we are revelation. And when it gets dark, it's not time to whine. It's time to shine. Lord, I pray that you would put that in our spirits, that we have the answer, that you have a future and a hope for us, no matter the condition, no matter how angry we get about the decisions that are made, that this, our nations, the nations of the world are not in the hands of people, but they're in the hands of God. Father, we pray tonight for our president. Pray, if you're from another country, would you please just join us in praying for our president? We pray for President Obama tonight. God, we know you love him. We love him with you. God, we pray, as Lou prophesied, that he would be an Abraham Lincoln. That you would, Lord, whatever you're doing in his life, that he would have an experience that would give him a deeper revelation of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I'm not saying he doesn't know you. I, I don't know his heart. But whatever revelation he has, whatever revelation I have, there's always a deeper place. And Lord, we pray for our president that you would protect him, that you would shield his family, that you would, Lord, that you would convict him. And I mean, not just of sin, that you would convict him of righteousness, that you would convict him of justice and judgment. And God, that, that he would rise up and I thank you, God, for a black president. It's a sign of the redemptive nature of God for the African-American people. But God, it's also a sign that you can change anything. You can change any culture. You can move any heart. And Lord, I pray right now that you would move upon our Congress, upon our senators, upon our representatives, upon our city managers, our city mayors, among our governors. God, that you would move powerfully right now in Jesus' name. That, I mean, that people would be convinced of God. You know, I'm con- I, I said the other day at our church, some, I had this dream actually, and I saw people, con- unbelievers, convic- convicted of sin, but not convinced of a Savior. Let me just say it again. I saw sinners convicted of sin, but not convinced of a Savior. And the Lord, and over the and over the top of the stream, I heard the word depression. And the Lord said, "When I convict them of sin, but you haven't convinced them there's a Savior, it only leads to depression." And Lord, I pray that you would cause us to do signs and wonders and miracles that they would be convinced of a Savior, so that you convict them of their sin. How many of you know we don't want to convict them of their problem until we let them know there's an answer? Lord, we pray for that in Jesus' name, that the body of Christ would actually be the body of Christ. They'd actually see a Savior so they could receive conviction, and they would know there's an answer. Lord, we pray for that right now in Jesus' name.